for some reason, someone told us we should go to Hawaii. Now, Hawaii is a place that I've never really, uh, really wanted to go that badly because it always kind of has a, it always sounded to me kind of rich and ostentatious. Well, we went to Hawaii and they kind of, you know, turn up their nose and then they look all tanned and here I am, you know, white, you know, from the rain in Abbotsford. And I always kind of felt a little bit jealous, but I didn't really want to be part of that. So we finally decided we would go there because it cost about the same to go to Hawaii as it cost to go to Winnipeg. And so we sort of pondered that prayerfully and decided to go to Hawaii. Now, when we were in Hawaii, yeah, I actually tried not to tell anyone that I was in Hawaii. Like, I, I tried not to get too much of a tan so no one would ask. I tried not to, you know, uh, mention it because I didn't want, you know, that. So I hope you're not going to put this on the Internet, right? Like, it's going to be just between us, okay? Like, private and, and quiet. And when we went there, we didn't have much money to buy, like, fancy souvenirs. So we just sort of bought a few shirts, and, and this is one of them. And I bought a T-shirt, and it had Hawaii, and it had some weird words underneath. And the words were no ka'oi. And it was on sale, right? So I bought it. I didn't know what it meant, but I figured, and I thought later, I better figure out what it meant. Because what if it says, like, I'm an idiot or hit me or whatever. So I looked it up, and apparently no ka'oi means the best. So it's Hawaii, and then it says no ka'oi underneath it, like the best. And that's kind of encouraging when you can go somewhere on vacation that apparently is like the best. Right, I've never seen a shirt that said, like, Swift Current, no ka'oi. Like, have you ever? Right? I've never seen, you know, Yarrow, no ka'oi. Anybody from Yarrow? Like, no offense or anything. But it is encouraging to know that Hawaii is no ka'oi. It's the best. Now, I've been thinking about that, and I've been thinking about life. I had a, I had a birthday this summer prior to our honeymoon, our anniversary trip, which was our honeymoon, and uh, it was my 50th. Like, that, was, that was kind of a challenging birthday to have. And I've been thinking about that. Maybe it's midlife crisis, but it seems to me that as Christians, we are aware that we really only have one life to live. It's not like some other people who believe that you come back here for numerous times until you get it right. Christians, we understand that we have one opportunity to live a no kaoi life. And that's really been challenging and making me think about that. Am I living a no kaoi life? Now, when I think about that question, if we were to go around and interview people and say, what exactly is the no kaoi life? And if we defined it for them, what is the best life to live on earth? What would they say to us if we were to interview 50 people today out here at the International Festival? What would they likely say? Now, when you watch the TV and you see ads for the lottery. It gives you a pretty clear impression of what people think is the Nokoi life. I mean, you watch these six guys fly fishing. They never appear that they're ever going to go back to work. They're going to fly fish forever now. And you can see some couple, you know, cruising around some tropical island. And little birds like land. I mean, that never happens when I'm around birds. They don't land there just like saying hi to me. And they have their own little island, just the two of them. They don't need, apparently need groceries or anything like that. And then there's some ad where they go hiking up a mountain. And at the top of the mountain, they have an incredible breakfast served to them as the sun rises. A helicopter arrived. Right? This is what many people consider the best life. 
a life with bucket loads full of money and apparently no, nothing to do, nothing to worry about. Now, the second thing related, obviously, to this is a view of life that people say really has no anxieties. Hakuna wat matata, which is a Swahili word, Swahili word that means no worries. No worries. People want to have bucket loads of money, which they think is connected to having no what? Worries. Now, the Jewish rabbis, in a writing that they wrote called Avot, which means the fathers, they wrote in there saying, the more wealth, the more what? Anxiety. The more worries. I found that to be true in my own life. Every once in a while, we'll try to buy something new. And we'll go and we'll get this thing, we'll research it, we'll buy something new. And guess what happens? The very night we own it, I'm like, oh, do we need to insure it? Should we have got the extended warranty? Right? Oh, how are we going to make sure this doesn't, whatever. You notice that? I'm in counseling for this, okay? So maybe it's just me. But I find that the more things I own, the more what? The more worries I have. And when you travel the world, you realize that North America, with all of the stuff North Americans own, also has the greatest level of anxieties. You travel around the world, little children are playing with a masking tape soccer ball that they made this morning from cardboard and masking tape, and there's smiles all over the place. There seems to be no connection often between wealth and having low levels of anxiety. And North America has the greatest prescription level of antidepressants, anti-anxiety drugs, and so on. So the first vision of best life out here, I think, in the world is bucket loads of money, no worries, and thirdly, it seems to be no work. People seem to think the best life would be no work. If we could just possibly not have to go to work on Monday. Anybody? Oh, don't raise your hand. But that seems to be the case. People think that the best life would not involve work. I was a chaplain in a hospital in, in California, and I worked on the cardiac wing, which meant I got to visit patients who had single, double, triple, and quadruple bypass surgeries. And I, I kind of try to figure out how come it seems to be the same kind of people that are in this cardiac ward recovering from open heart surgery. And it seemed to be men predominantly and men who had retired only a couple of years earlier. They were within one or two years of retirement. They had stopped working. They had traveled all over North America in their motorhome. And now they were sitting in their living room with really nothing to do, no community and no purpose. And I came to the realization that the best life is not the life without work. Now, if you think about that as Christians, what are we going to say about the best life? I mean, if someone were to interview you randomly and say, what's the best life? I mean, I would have been tempted to say, oh yeah, lots of money, nothing to worry about, no work. I find that my culture has so acculturated me to believe that. Do you believe and do I believe that the best life is bucket loads of money, no anxieties, and no work? Now, we are Christians, and Christians are people of the book, which means we don't look on the TV to figure out what the lottery company thinks is the best life. We don't look around to the newspaper what's the best life. We look where? Theoretically, anybody? We look. Please, help me out. John, please. You look in the Bible. We are people of the book. Now it says in John 10.10, as a verse that probably all of you know, Jesus says, I have come that you might have what? Life and have it how? 
to the full. Now, the presupposition of everything I say this morning is that Jesus is the center of the best life for anyone on this planet. Jesus, the Jesus life, is the no kaoi life. Can you say it with me? The Jesus life is the no kaoi life. Say it again. The Jesus life is the no kaoi life. In other words, our lives, if they orbit around Jesus, they will be the best life. Now, that's a presupposition this morning as we look at Joseph. Now, we could have picked a number of other biblical characters to determine what will it teach us about the no kaoi life. What can we learn from people in the Bible about the best life? We could have picked Ruth. We could have picked Timothy. We could have picked a number of people. But we're going to pick Joseph this morning. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about Joseph's whole story. So there might be a bit of a summary happening here of Joseph's life. Now, we're part of uh, the Life Center, which is in Abbotsford. We meet in a school gymnasium. Uh, We're a church plant. Ron Taves was here last week. He's one of our members over there. And we have groups called life groups. I mean, I don't know what you call groups here. Life groups. Okay, we're called the Life Center, hence life groups. Kind of made sense to us. And when we're at life group, our particular life group often has introductions of people. And so what happens for the first 10 minutes is that at the beginning of our meeting, someone will be sort of from last week, said, hey, you want to tell a little bit of your story? And someone will come and they'll share 10 minutes of their story. They might have a few pictures. They'll say what they did as a child or whatever. Now, when I hear about, oh, so-and-so's on, I mean, I think it's going to be great, but I'm not, like, expecting very much. I don't expect anything like super revealing because I already know this person. I've been in church with them for a long time. But you know what inevitably happens? I find out something that just rocks my world about them. I find out something that happened to them when they were a child. I find out some incredible struggle in their marriage or in their family or in their work or some amazing dream or vision that they have. And once it's over, I say, wow, I wish I had known that. That really is amazing about them. Now, when I think about that, I mean, I think about Joseph. Now, we have all these pictures about Joseph and his father and everything. Now, do we know Joseph? Well, we might think we do. But I'd like to tell you a little bit of a story this morning about Joseph. And let's just imagine he's at your life group meeting. He's just telling his little story. Okay, I'm going to try that just for a couple of minutes, and I'll, I, can't, I can't sustain that. I wasn't very good in drama in school, so I'll just try my best. All right. Hi, I'm Joseph. Oh, thanks. And uh, I was born in a place called Haran. And apparently my father fled there and, you know, from my uncle Esau, who was super angry at him for stealing something. Now, we lived there for 20 years. I was born later when we were there. And most of my brothers and sisters were born there as well. Now, we were farmers, and it seemed like a nice place to live. But eventually, my grandpa and my father got into this big dispute And my dad and all of us fled quickly when my dad was out of town. And we ran away from my dad, and I heard he was coming and he wanted to kill us. I was, like, really traumatized in our tent. And he came and he was super upset that somebody had stolen something from him. And he searched all, every tent, and whoever had it would die. And can you imagine? I'm sitting in my tent saying, I hope it's not here. And amazingly enough, he couldn't find it anywhere. And then he and my father made some sort of agreement that they wouldn't hurt each other. Boy, was I relieved. We traveled further, and I thought, okay, I can relax now. But no, 
I was told that my uncle Esau was coming with 400 men. Now, this wasn't exactly a family reunion I was expecting. And we hid in our tent again, an amazing miracle of miracles. When my uncle Esau came, I thought it was over. And he gave my father a hug and forgave him. Oh, that was incredible. But I can still remember the fear that happened. I went to counseling. They said I had post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever that is. Now, as we were going on our trip, we were supposed to be going to this place called Hebron where I had never been. And on the way, we were traveling near this town called Bethlehem. And all of a sudden, everyone said, it's, it's time, it's time. And I thought, what's time for a what? And they kept all of us boys far away. And I heard my mother screaming. And she went on screaming and screaming. And suddenly, she stopped. And all I could hear was the sound of a baby crying. And that baby was my brother, Benjamin. And on that day, that was the last day I ever saw my mother. Now, if we were to think further into Joseph's life and that traumatic beginning, that's kind of where I'll take our story. Joseph has gone through that kind of trip. He's now living in Hebron, and he's somewhere in his teen years. And in his teen years, he has some dreams. You can see a picture up here of some of his dreams. And here is son number 11. He's low on the food chain. His mother is dead. The other three wives of his uh, father apparently don't really like him that much. And then he has these dreams where he'll become the one everyone bows down to. Now, foolishly, and probably arrogantly, he tells these dreams to his brothers and his father. And you know the story. One day when his brothers, ten brothers, have the chance, they throw him into a cistern with the intention of killing him. Thankfully, one of them decides that, hey, why don't we just sell him into slavery? And for 20 shekels of silver, they sell him to some Egyptian traders who are traveling by. 20 shekels of silver in today's silver value might be around $230. But in that day, it wasn't very much. It was the price of a slave. And he ends up probably with his hands wrapped behind his back in a long chain of uh, slaves walking for hours and hours and hours down to Egypt. Now, if you were there, if you put yourself in Joseph's position, your hands are tied behind your back, your brothers have just sold you for 20 shekels of silver, what would be your thoughts about God? God, you gave me these dreams, and look where I am now. Thanks a lot. What would be your vision about your brothers who are willing to sell you for 20 shekels of silver? What would be your vision about your family? Now, as he goes down to Egypt, he's 17 years old. Any 17-year-olds in here? He's 17 years old, and he goes down to Egypt with all of his teenage, whatever, hormones and issues. And he ends up getting sold into the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar, he works there for menial tasks for a while, and obviously through diligence, which is surprising, actually, in light of his 17-year-old age and all of this, through diligence, he ends up rising in the family and becomes sort of overseer of the household. And as you know from one of the pictures up here, one day, Potiphar's wife says to him, hey, why don't you sleep with me? And the text implies that we're supposed to see this as like, she's not just an old woman. She's, it's supposed to be a real temptation that he faces. Now, what's amazing about amazing is this 17, 18, or 19-year-old boy says what to her day after day after day? He says, how could I do this wicked thing and sin against God, he tells her. 
Like, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. 18-year-old boy telling her this. Now, let's just think back a little bit. Does Joseph have, uh, let's say, a church to attend on Sunday where he can hear people talk about fidelity and sexual faithfulness? Does anybody give him the book, Every Man's Battle, and have a little group and pray for him? Does he have the opportunity to listen to podcasts or praise 106.5 in his chariot, which he doesn't have? All right. Does he have any of those options? Does he have anyone coming over to him say, hey, I know the household is, you know, really challenging. We're praying for you. Stay faithful. He has none of those. And yet, what does he do on each of those days? He says, I could not do this wicked thing. It's a sin against God. Jewish tradition says that that is the day when he becomes a righteous man. He is righteous to God, to other people, his relationships. Now, after all of that, you know, you might think that being faithful is going to lead to incredibly amazing rewards. Sometimes I watch, you know, TV evangelists or radio evangelists. And I often hear them say, if you're faithful to the Lord, you'll receive prosperity. Like, I don't know which Bible they've been reading. But he is faithful to the Lord, and where does he end up? He ends up in prison. This is not what people normally preach on television. Send your donation. Faithfulness, prison. All right? I don't hear that very often. But that is the story of Joseph's life. He stands faithfully before God. He proclaims God, says, I will not sin against God. He runs away. He's falsely accused of rape. I don't really think Potiphar probably believed it totally, or he would have had him killed. He probably had questions about his wife's story, but he had to do something, so he puts Joseph in prison. Now, in prison, Joseph is faithful and diligent again. I mean, can you think about that? Is this not amazing? He's faithful and diligent again. He has these tasks. He ends up moving up a little bit in the prison. People tell him his dreams, and every time they tell him his dreams, he seems to say, what? I can't give you the interpretation. It's God who has to give you the interpretation. I mean, he's somewhere between 17 and, and 30 years old in prison all of these years. He's in prison apparently for about 10 years, it looks like. And during that entire time, does he have ups and downs? He tells some people some dreams. Guess what? One of them forgets about him totally. And he languishes in prison for more and more and more years. And finally one day, uh, Potiphar, I mean, Pharaoh himself has some dreams and the cupbearer finally, thankfully, remembers Joseph, and they bring him out. He stands in front of the most powerful man in the ancient world. And what does he say? I can't give you the interpretation. Only God can give you the interpretation. And he gives the interpretation to Pharaoh, and he ends up being second in command, and he has responsibility. Uh, he's 30 years old. He's given a wife. He has a responsibility to, to help Egypt in seven great years to store up food and in, prepare, in preparation for the seven years of famine. Now, at that point... God has been preparing him, and his brothers show up some two years or so into the famine years. He's now 37, 39, somewhere in there. And his brothers come and stand in front of him. And that's where we are today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, it's Genesis chapter 45. We'll read from verse uh, 4 to verse 15. Why don't you stand with me as we read Scripture this, uh, this morning. Now, Joseph is going to test his brothers when they show up in front of him. He's not going to reveal himself. They, it's been over 20 years since his brothers saw him. 
He's clean-shaven. He's changed a lot. I mean, I have students at Columbia. I see them when they're 17, and then they you know, go off and do something. Five years later, they come to me and say, you know, shalom, and, and I don't, who are you? So five years sometimes it takes for me to not remember what they look like. And so it's been over 20 years, so the brothers don't recognize him. He recognizes his brothers. He tests them. He locks Simeon up and says, hey, go back home. And if the brothers are real brothers, they'll come back. If they're not real brothers, like they were 20 years earlier, what would they have sold his brother for? Oh yeah, 20 shekels, forget it. Who cares if he's my brother? But he finds out his brothers have changed. He, he, he finds, he, they bring Benjamin back. He gives Benjamin a bunch of stuff and says, don't quarrel on the journey. And if they were the brothers who were 20 years earlier, they would have taken everything and killed Benjamin, but they bring Benjamin back. The brothers have changed. And in Genesis 45, verses 4, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you uh, there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it's really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him weeping, and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. Oh, well, we'll read that far. You may be seated. Now, if you were Joseph, how would you have welcomed your brothers? I can imagine a number of other responses besides what Joseph did if my brothers had sold me for 20 shekels of silver. So when I think about that story, Joseph seems to think his life was a no-ka'oi life. Now what does it mean then? What can we learn from Joseph about the no-ka'oi life? Is this the life of bucket loads of money, no worries, and no work? When you think about Joseph. Joseph thought his life was the Nokoi life. In Genesis 50, 20, he says, What you planned for evil, God planned for good, the saving of many lives. So Joseph's life, he considers the Nokoi life. And why is it? I'd like to suggest two things today in light of his life. The first thing is the Nokoi life is a life that embraces difficulties and challenges. The Nokoi life is a life that embraces difficulties and challenges. Joseph's life, how many difficulties and challenges did he have? Well, think about it. The loss of his mother when he was young. His, the rejection by his brothers. Fear in his early life of being killed. Then his, his brothers rejecting the dreams. His brothers selling him. Difficulties when he's in Egypt. People forgetting about him. Living in prison. So, the Nokoi life embraces difficulties and challenges. Now, what is the purpose of those difficulties and challenges? According to the Bible, 
those difficulties and challenges are part of the best life. And when I look at uh, Romans 5, verses 3 and 4, it says, We also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, the best life, then, is about we individually and us as parents embracing challenge and difficulty. If you want your children to learn math, what do you do? You give them easy questions, and when they master easy questions, what do you give them? More difficult questions. When they're reading an easy book, what do you give them after they have the easy book virtually memorized? You give them a more challenging book. When the Canucks want to get better, they don't play the Langley Peewees. I haven't seen that. Because it wouldn't make the Canucks what? Better. Now, when God looks at our life, he doesn't say, okay, you've got it mastered. You're like 12 years old. Let's just make sure from now on it's what? Easy. God looks at us, I believe, and he lets us experience difficulties and challenges for the purpose of character. For the purpose of character. And it's the same with we as parents. Now, I know a lot of parents, my temptation for my children is to make my children's life as easy as possible. There are lots of children today who are spending their mornings, their nights, in the basement in front of a big screen, playing video games, sleeping until noon, because parents are saying, this is the best life for my children. Let's make it comfortable. Let's make it easy. Let's not include any difficulties and challenges. Let's protect them from those things. And the Bible seems to say that the Nokaoi life is not a life without difficulties and challenges. Because difficulties and challenges produce what? Character. I don't know if I like that when my dad said that to me. Go do something with the potatoes. Why? Because it produces character. But it seems to me the Bible says exactly that. The Bible cares a lot more about your character than your comfort. God seems to care a lot more about character than comfort which is the same thing for us as, children, as parents with our children. Now, when I think about that, we need to celebrate character. When I want something for my children, I love it when they, oh, they won some award at school. They scored some basket during the, you know, our soccer goal or something. I want to celebrate that. Do we celebrate character? Do we celebrate when our neighbors come and say, I saw your son or daughter do this. Oh, wow, it was really impressive. Do we say, oh, do we celebrate that? In this very important theological movie that, or film that we watched uh, with our children called Winnie the Pooh and the Blustery Day. Anybody seen that? that? It's a very important theological. And somewhere along the line, somebody, you or something, does something amazing and they have a hero party. They have a hero party and they all kind of march around. And I thought, this is a great idea. So one of our kids did something that was really cool and sacrificial and I grabbed my trumpet which probably wasn't very good. We were living in a townhouse complex, so that probably wasn't good. But all the kids were behind me. They were all dancing around. We're celebrating something that had to do with character. I'm sure food was involved eventually, right? But I did, it made me think about that. Do we celebrate character? Do we celebrate high marks? Yes. Do we celebrate athletic achievement? Yes. Do we celebrate? We celebrate all those things. But do we celebrate character? When we see things in our children, when we see things in our own lives, when we see things in our congregations, do we celebrate character? Now, besides the fact that the best life involves difficulties and challenges for the production of character, the best life, according to Joseph, and I believe the rest of the Bible, also involves great purpose. 
When you think about Joseph, why did he consider his life to be the Nokoi life? Because it had an incredible purpose. The saving of his entire family, which meant who was going to come from his, his brothers and sisters? His brothers were eventually going to, King David was going to come from this family. Obviously, Jesus came from this family. So Joseph's actions had incredible purpose and meaning. I read a book this uh, last year, uh, Donald Miller's book called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. I don't know if you've read that book. But he talks a little bit about purpose. He says, each of our lives can have an objective which is a very poor purpose, or we can have an incredibly godly and important purpose. And he says many people, their whole life purpose is very mundane and very, you know, kind of like bucket loads of money, no anxiety, and no work. And he says if you have that kind of purpose, it'd be like watching a movie. Would anybody want to watch a movie where at the end of this, the whole movie was about someone working 12 hours a day so they could build a big house, buy a Volvo, and sit there? Nobody would watch that movie. He says, a good story is where someone has an amazing purpose. And Joseph had an amazing purpose. He tells the story of a family that had a 13 or 14-year-old daughter who was far away from the family. Didn't want to be around the family. Hung out with some guy, major tattoos, no offense if, you know, if tattoos are okay. But anyway, it was concerning for the father. And he, he was talking to Donald Miller and he says, you know, I don't know what to do. with." And Donald Miller isn't even married. He says, I don't know what to do exactly. But the guy said, I read your book and it made me think about having a purpose for my family. And he said one day, he brought his wife and his daughter in there. He says, you know, I've been thinking and praying about this and we'd like to start an orphanage in Mexico. And it's going to cost a lot of money. We don't really have it. And of course, his wife was like, probably a good idea to talk to your wife before you have the family meeting. Okay, any man here? Like, I recommend that. But anyway, he got in trouble with his wife and he got in trouble with his daughter. His daughter says, are you kidding? This is crazy, dumb idea. But you know what? It transformed his marriage and it transformed his relationship with his daughter. Because one thing he learns that we all should learn is that our children will find a purpose. They will find a purpose. And if the purpose is not orbiting toward Jesus, if the purpose is not the transformation of the world significantly, they will find some other purpose. And Joseph's life was an Okaoi life because it had an amazing, awesome purpose. Now we as Christians, if someone said to us, what is your purpose? Right? What is your purpose? If someone were to interview, what's your purpose in your life? I mean, I thought, what would I say? What would I say to that question? I hope I would say that according to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, it says that my purpose is the same purpose that Jesus asked us to pray. May your kingdom come where? On earth as it is in heaven. I pray that when Jesus comes back, that he'd be able to look at each one of us and we have been with Jesus fulfilling his mission that his kingdom may come on earth as it is in heaven. And he might say that is the Nokoi life. When we stand together and pray, we'll say the Lord's Prayer together, then the worship team will come back up. Our chances of winning the 649 lottery is 1 in 14 million. What is our chances of having a Nokoi life orbiting around Jesus? Let's bow together. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.